So if you guys know me, you know that I love a good road trip. I, I love road trips. I've been, I've been on a, quite a few of them. And uh, I have to tell you, my, my favorite road trip ever was probably a few years ago when Laura and I had the gr- chance to drive old Route 66 out to California. And of course, we saw about eight or nine different national parks along the way. Uh, but I've been on a lot of trips, and the, the reason why I liked this one the best, because it was so thoughtfully planned with, with interesting things to see and do along the way. You know, like the, the, world's great, the world's largest covered wagon we saw. We stayed in a motel that looked like a, like a wigwam. I mean, it was just super interesting. And uh, that made it a really great trip. Uh, and I think it, what made it so great is because we had taken the time to thoughtfully plan out the steps and things that we wanted to see along the way. And I've taken enough trips to know that if you don't plan ahead, you're likely to miss out on something that's, that's pretty cool. You're likely to miss out on something that's interesting. Um, on the other hand, I've taken enough trips to know, and I think you can probably identify with this as well, some of the best moments in our lives and on trips like this are, are some of the unplanned. Some of the spontaneous things that happen that you couldn't have even thought, kind of like when an elk passed through our campsite at Rocky Mountain National Park. Couldn't have planned for that to happen, but it was one of the most delightful things uh, in our lives. And I think this, there's tension between organized and organic, between planned and spontaneous, between order and freedom. This is a helpful way to think about the worship journey, the journey of corporate worship, that we need both a, a, a planned and a spontaneous, an organized and organic, an order and a freedom. And this is the way the Covenant Church, our denomination, has often thought about worship over the years. And today we're starting a, a brand new series called The Worship Centered Church. And I want you to look at the front of the bulletin you received this morning. And on there, there is a picture uh, of our strategy, strategy of how we hope to accomplish the mission of our church. We want to connect people into compelling Christian community. We want to help them grow as followers of Jesus. And then we want to reach out to our community with the love of Christ. And all of this is centered upon uh, the corporate worship of the church, this gathering that we have every week. And i got to give the shout-out to Michaela Jarris, who helped design that logo. If you think it's nice, she helped design that, so that was great. Uh, But it's the center of our church because Christians have been gathering together on Sundays for 2,000 years. We've been doing this for 2,000 years to, wor- to worship God. And the question I want to ask is, well, what makes for a compelling and God-honoring worship journey? And I think I'm going to submit to you this morning, it's really helpful when you're on a journey to have some type of guide, to have a, to have a map for your journey of worship. And when you don't have a guide or when you don't understand the journey, a few things can happen. I think, number, number, first, worship can be really confusing. Perhaps, perhaps you're newer to the church, or perhaps you've never been taught about the order of service, and sometimes they can just feel like a random assortment of songs and prayers and scriptures, and, and now we're, we're standing here, we're sitting here, and we're doing this here, and we're not sure how it all fits together into one logical flow. And so it can be very confusing what we're actually doing here, and we're not sure why. So it can be confusing. Sometimes if we don't play, uh, you know, carefully plan this journey, worship can get stale. It can get very stale because everything is done the same way in the same order week after week. Have you guys ever heard of these things called commutes? You know, I, I'm not sure what they are because, you know, I, I leave my back door and, and walk over here. But I have heard of these things where, where you, you leave your, your place where you live 
and you drive to your workplace every day. And I have heard that sometimes they're almost an hour for some of you. And you guys know what I'm talking about, this, this thing called the commute? I, I hope so. Okay, you're nodding your head. Okay, good. What, what happens when you go on a commute? You can go on autopilot, right? You can kind of just, you do it every day. You can you kind of stop paying attention to your surroundings. You can, you know, you see people talking on the phone. You see people doing their, doing their makeup while they're on their commute. You can go on autopilot because you've done it a thousand times. You don't really have to pay attention to what's going on. And if we're not careful, careful the same thing can happen with worship. Sometimes if you don't carefully plan the journey, the, uh, the worship journey can feel chaotic. If there is, if there is no kind of logical flow, flow or order to what we are doing, it can kind of feel very haphazard. And, and that can make it very difficult to participate in what's going on because you're not sure what's going on. So it can be chaotic. So another question I want to ask is, does the Church of Jesus Christ have a guide to the worship journey? Does the Church of Jesus Christ have a guide? Well, it's a complicated answer in some ways because there is a lot of variety to how the church has worshipped over 2,000 years. And rightfully so. The church has existed in different cultures and different nations. It's been around for a really long time. And so you see all of these diverse expressions and, and ways of worshipping God that are just different. And that's, and that's great. Uh, yet at the same time, you can look at the course of the history of the church and you can actually see there is a consistent way of organizing the order of worship. Robert Weber, who was one of the most foremost scholars of worship uh, in our time, he wrote this amazing library of worship at seven volumes. He studied the whole history of worship of the church and he made an astonishing claim I want you to see. He says, one can study the history of worship from the early church to the present and discover without exception that Sunday worship has always been characterized by these four acts. Now, what four acts is he talking about? This is what he's talking about. He's talking about the gathering, the word, the table, and the sending. Those are the four acts of worship that have been consistent throughout church history, according to Robert Weber. And now it's, it's enough of order that helps us organize, but it's also an order that allows for a diversity of expression across time and across cultures. And I want you to keep your bulletin in front of you and open it up, and you'll see that there are four kind of, kind of headlines, kind of topical headlines in your order of worship this morning. And these are the four parts of the corporate worship journey. And we're going to be talking about what those mean uh, in our message today. But before we dive into those, I want to give us kind of a, def, a working definition that will help us understand what we're doing. And, and here's, this is not in for all time for, you know, for everybody, but this is definition for Faith Covenant Church and what we're doing here. Corporate worship is a four-part journey with Jesus that transforms us for the sake of the world. Corporate worship, it's a four-part journey with Jesus that transforms us for the sake of the world. Look at what Constance Sherry, uh, author of The Worship Architect, she says this. She says, Worship is a journey, a journey into God's presence, the gathering, of hearing from God the word that celebrates Christ, the table, and that sends us into the world changed by our encounter with God, the sending. Each movement leads intelligently to the next so that in the end, it is the journey that's experienced. That's what we're after. And Constance Sherry, in her, in her book, she, she compares the journey of worship to the journey of these two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And that's what I want to talk about as our, our text this morning. 
And if, you might be wondering, didn't we hear this last week? <laughs> you did. And actually, without prior communication, our guest preacher preached on the same text. And it was a great setup. So awesome how God works that in sometimes. Um, but I want to talk about that. And the four, the four points of my sermon are going to be the four headlines, the four movements in our worship service. So the first thing I want to talk about is God gathers us to worship. God gathers us to worship. The story that was read earlier, it begins with two disciples who are, they're in a state of confusion and sadness. They were, they were early followers of the Jesus movement, and they thought that Jesus was going to restore their hopes for the nation of Israel, that they were going to overcome the Romans who were occupying their land at that time, and that he was going to be the savior of their nation. And then when they saw him die on the cross, they thought, they thought everything was lost. The person that we were following, he, he's dead. And so they're discussing these things, they're walking along the road, and they're confused, and they're in despair, and they're downcast. And it's that, that very moment, the text says, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bible too, Luke 24, if you need to turn there. Verse 15 and 16. You see, all worship in all Christian living begins with Jesus choosing to journey with us. With Jesus choosing to journey with us. As our preacher said last week, you are Jesus' destination. That perhaps like the disciples, you, maybe you haven't recognized it before, you haven't recognized how he's been at work in your life, but Jesus, you can be sure, has been seeking you out. He has been desiring a relationship with you. He has been doing things in your life to try to get your attention to journey through life with you. He wants to be in relationship with us, so he seeks to journey with us. And so corporate worship, it always begins with God gathering us to worship. Notice how the emphasis is on God there, that he's the one seeking us out. He's the one calling us to worship. He's the one motivating us, leading us, and he's calling us together as God's family to be in this community and to worship his name. And so when we come here on Sunday mornings, we come in response we come in response to the call that God has placed in our lives to be together and to worship him. We gather to journey with Jesus, believing that he's alive and that when we meet together on Sundays, he meets us in a very special way. So Jesus, he engages these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, where they are, and it's revealed that they have a, a misunderstanding about who he, who he is. Like I said, they thought that he was supposed to be this conquering king of the Romans and that, and that the cross was the utter failure. But it was the, actually the exact opposite. That actually it was through the cross that Jesus was renewing all things. That he was bringing the hope and forgiveness and grace of God into the world and, and renewing the whole world. And this, in fact, is what Jesus said all the scriptures were pointing to. But they missed out, they missed out on seeing it because they didn't understand the story. They didn't understand the, the story of the Old Testament scriptures. And this is why we need the second movement of the worship journey. God speaks to us through his word. We need God to speak to us through his word. Look what Jesus did in verse 26. He says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus takes the Old Testament and he, what does he do? He shows how it's one big story. That's been pointing to him the entire time and that he is actually the climax of the Old Testament. He is, he is the things to which everything has been pointing. If you were part of our Minor Prophets series, you saw how all things were pointing to the coming of this Messiah, this one who would come and redeem all things. And so 
this is what happened, that God would finally redeem all things by becoming one of us, by redeeming our humanity, by dying on the cross for all of our sins, and by sending his Holy Spirit that we might be united to him once again. Just like the first human beings in the garden, they could walk with God whenever they wanted. Now, Jesus has restored our relationship with God and we can walk with him fully once again. And so the Old Testament, both in its story and its, and its predictions, pointed to the coming of Jesus in the world. And Jesus, he explains this to the, to the, two, uh, the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And just like those two disciples, we are in constant need of God revealing himself through his word. And on Sunday mornings, we accomplish this through the reading and the preaching of the scriptures. And I don't know if you know this, on 845 on Sunday mornings, there is a, there is a small group of us who pray mightily that God would speak to you in your life, wherever you're at, that he would speak through his word every Sunday morning. That it wouldn't just be something that is just a formality, but actually know that you would encounter the presence of God. We pray for that every Sunday. And so, the ministry of the word, this has been central to the, the worship of the church since the very beginning. I want you to look at what the Apostle Paul said to his mentee, the, the pastor Timothy. He says this, Preach the word. Be prepared in football season and not a football season. <laughs> no. In season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instructions. So he's saying this is the job of the teachers of the church, the pastors, the elders, to take the word and to teach it so that you can correct anything that might be off and to, so that we can live in the truth, to rebuke, to call us out when we, when we need to live in light of God's ways and to encourage us, to fill us with courage that we might live out the teachings of Jesus when it gets scary or when it gets hard. That's what we're supposed to be doing with the ministry of the Word. And the church has been doing this since the very beginning. I want you to see one more quote from a guy named Justin Martyr. He was uh, one of the early apologists of the church. And uh, he wrote, wrote a book called the First Apologies in 155 AD, and he gives a description of what the Sunday morning services looked like about a hundred years after Paul was planning his churches. So it's amazing that we have this uh, evidence in history. And, and look what it says. On the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together in one place. In the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, scriptures read, as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president or the pastor verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray, and that, as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. See, what is he showing here? He's showing us the four movements of worship, but he's also showing what we're supposed to be doing with the word and what the pastor is supposed to do. To verbally instruct, he says, to teach the scriptures so clearly that you can understand them and how, what they mean for you in your life, and to encourage you to live it out. Did you know that you're actually supposed to do something with the word that's preached on Sunday? That it's actually supposed to do something in your life, that you're supposed to live it out, to imitate the good things that we learn in scriptures. So that as James says, you don't just listen to the word, you do what it says. We need Christians who live out the teachings of Jesus. And so when we come together on Sundays, we, need, we want to encourage you, live out the teachings of Jesus Christ. Imitate him. Imitate the good things that we read about. Because corporate worship, it's a four-part journey that transforms. It's supposed to change your life for the sake of the world. So let's recap a little bit. God gathers us to worship. 
And God speaks to us through his word. And then what are we supposed to do? Number three, we respond to God. This is the third stage of the worship journey. After God has spoken to us, we want to respond to him. Look what is happening in the story. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. You see, Jesus met them on their journey. He told them the truth about himself. He shares the gospel with them. But he doesn't force himself into their lives. He doesn't force himself upon them. He doesn't coerce them into relationship. No, he is, he is humble. He is patient. He is kind. He is, he is respectful. And he honors who they are. He wants to meet us on the journey, certainly, but he waits for us to invite him into our lives. And this is what the two disciples did. Look at verse 29. It says they, they urged him strongly. Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with him. He responded to their invitation. And I believe, just like Jesus, these two disciples, it's important for us to invite Jesus to, to kind of keep with us, so to speak, for a little bit. To, to open, up, open up some space, to open up some time, to open up our hearts, to, for, to allow him to work in our lives. Oftentimes we hear the word, but we, we don't keep with Jesus for too long afterwards, do we? We hear God speak to us, we hear the word preach, but sometimes we, we, just, we, we sing a song, all right, you're on your way. And we don't let Jesus stay with us a little while. We have to allow some time to let the word of God digest, so to speak. To let it marinate a little bit. Put it in the crock pot. Open up some space. And, you know, in the Bible, uh, there's this comparison between the word of God and a seed. And when you plant a seed, you gotta, you got to tend to it a little bit. you got to make sure there's some soil around it. you got to water it. you kind of got to make sure it gets off to a good start. And if we don't tend to the word of God that's read and preached, it's going to be like one of those seeds that just falls on the path and doesn't change your life. you got to open up some space to allow Jesus to come and speak with us about that word. And so these disciples, they invite Jesus to stay with them a little longer after they hear the word from him. And they have a meal where Jesus breaks bread with them over the table. And I think Luke, our gospel writer, he's kind of giving you a little a nudge, nudge, a little, little wink, wink. What does this remind you of? Of course, it reminds you of communion. It reminds you of the Lord's table, that they're celebrating, that they recognize Jesus in the sacrament of communion. And the, the early church, this is what they did. The early church was the two main things were the word and the table. Or as the Protestant reformers called it, word and sacrament. And very early on, the, the gathering and the sending were tagged on to the front and the end. So gathering, word, table, sending. And uh, now, for many reasons, Protestants and evangelical Christians, and I, reasons I can't really fully describe right now, they eventually got away from weekly communion. You know, and I think there's some very valid biblical and historical uh, things to think about and how actually that might be a really good thing. But as it stands in our tradition, we, we don't celebrate weekly communion. So, but even so, we still need to spend time with Jesus after hearing the word of God. Whether it's the table or something else, we still need to allow Jesus to come commune in our lives and to respond to him in some way. And so we need to open up that space, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through offering, whether it's through some other means. We want to invite Jesus into our lives so that we can respond to the word we just heard. So God gathers us, God speaks to us, we respond to God, and then lastly, God sends us out. He sends us out. Back in the story, after they eat with Jesus at the table, he disappears from them, and now they're fired up. 
They are fired up. Look at what verse 32 says. We're not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road. This, my friends, this is where every worship journey should hopefully, and I pray, leads you. That when you, when, you, when you leave the worship journey experience, that your heart is burning within you because you had an encounter with the living Jesus Christ. But how different sometimes do we treat the end of worship? And we leave worship, we say, well, what did you think about worship today? Well, I really liked worship today because they played the couple songs I like. Oh, I didn't really like worship today because they did this song or it was too slow or, or I didn't really, the prayer went too long or it was, just, it was boring, blah, blah, blah. And we say, really, are, are we, what are we doing? Are we turning worship into another consumer event that we evaluate based on our preferences, whether we like it or not? We're not, I'm not, we're not trying, as a church, we're not trying to simply entertain you. We're trying to change your life through an encounter with the living God. That's what we're trying to do here. And so when we leave, let's not make it about what our preferences are. Let me give you a suggestion. Instead of asking what you liked or didn't like about worship today, when you go home and you get around the table, ask, how did God speak to you through worship today? How did God speak into your life? What is now upon your heart? What is in your heart and in your mind now that you've been a part of this worship journey? What is God speaking? And how, are, how is it going to change your week? How might it change the way you think, the way you live, the way you feel? Those are the real meaningful questions that get at the heart of what we're doing here. And these disciples, they were totally changed. They were totally changed. They were planning on going in for the night. They were planning on parking their camel and turning the TV on. But no, they don't do that. They go out. They, it was evening. They were turning in, but instead they go back to Jerusalem, about a six or seven mile trip, and they, they do a 6K, and they get over there, and they, they want to tell the disciples what happened. They want to proclaim the good news. Verse 33, uh, 33 says, They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They were sent out. You see, every corp corporate worship journey is meant to lead us to this same place. That God gathers us. He speaks to us. We respond. We open up some space to say, God, what, you, what do you want me to do with this word? And then how can I live it out? And then he sends us to go be his light and his love into the world where we live. To go be the church. To go make disciples. Let me give you a few points of application this morning. Uh, First off, I want to say that this, this way of thinking about worship, this way of organizing worship, it's not the gospel. It's not, it's not the Bible. It's not the Word of God. It's simply a historical and traditional way of, of thinking about organizing what we do. But the reality is they're just externals. They're just rituals. They're just, they're just things. And if you were part of our Minor Prophets series, you know that God really would care less about the rituals. And really, what is He after? He's after you. He is seeking you. He's not after the perfect order of service. He's after your heart. He's after a relationship with you. He wants to be in your life. And so that's what we want to do. We want to open up some space for God to come and meet with us every Sunday morning. And another point of application I want to talk about is if, if you're a member of our church, if you're a regular of our church, I want to encourage you to, to make corporate worship on Sunday mornings uh, a priority in your life. A priority in your life. That if you're available, I would, I would even be bold to say, if you're available and you have nothing going on, come every Sunday. Come every Sunday. Make this, make this a part of your, of your weekly rhythm. Unless you're out of, if you're in town, come. Because this is the central part of our life. Listen to what Gordon Smith says about public worship. He says, The public act of Christian worship, the liturgy, is the single most formative event in the life of the Christian community. 
Men and women are transformed into the image of Christ through the means of grace, and nothing is so significant in this respect as the regular, consistent participation in corporate worship. It is for this reason that worship has always been seen as the central life of the Christian community. Other components or dimensions of our common life together flow out of this event. This is the hub. This is the hub for our life together. It's the center of what we do. And if you're not here, we, you miss out on that, and when you, we miss out on you, on what you offer and contribute to the community. And I, I believe when you do that, when you make that commitment, it will change your life. It will change your life, because God changes lives. God changes our lives. When we meet with God, he changes our lives. And, uh, and he changes our lives through the gospel. And, I, and one thing I want to point out is I want you to notice how this order of worship tells the gospel story. That, when, that God gathers us. Actually, it's God who seeks you out. He seeks a relationship with you. He, he sought you so much that he came to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And, he, and, and secondly, he, he spoke to us. He spoke to us through his teachings, through, through the Gospels. He revealed himself through, the, through his son and has, has offered himself this message of grace of dying upon the cross. And then what does he do? He invites you to respond. He invites you to accept this offer of free grace, to, to be a part of this community, this kingdom, this family that he's building. And then when you finally choose to respond to that call that Jesus has on your life, he invites you, he sends you to go be a part of his mission of loving people, of telling other people the good news, of working for justice, of doing good deeds, of being salt and light in our community. That's the gospel story, isn't it? That's what changes lives. Let me close with this quote. The most significant and life-transforming event that happens every week is the quiet, consistent act of Christians worshiping the living God. It is not mentioned in the headlines of the daily newspaper, but is the most crucial event in the life of any town or city. For in a quiet, unobtrusive way, God is bringing about a revolution. Now this morning, we're going to be responding to God by opening up some space to pray and to think and reflect. And our prayers of the people time are going to be here. And I'm going to, uh, as I pray, I'm going to offer some brief times of silence where you can pray about and reflect on the things we're praying for. And at the very end, we will close uh, with the Lord's Prayer together uh, using forgive us our sins. Okay? So let us go to the Lord in prayer.